Welcome to The She Word, conversations that women rarely have, but really should. And today's conversation is incredibly important. Today, we're talking about mental health, and we're talking about mental health in the context of every single woman that's on this planet and what we are facing as women. I'm thrilled to be joined by Roberta Ferrugia de Bono, who is a clinical psychologist and a family therapist and a lecturer specializing in mental health uh, related issues. And also Yasmin De Giorgio, thank you so much for being with us. Sanyo Eco Spa is a wellness spa specializing in supporting people to experience deeper levels of physical and mental well-being. But you are also an advocate for good mental health through our behaviors and how we interact. And Samira, thank you so much for being with us as well. You are a lifestyle and mental health activist who regularly speaks out across your platform to so many people about your own experiences and mental health in general. Now, I want to start off by sharing some really pretty scary statistics. I think we all know that mental health issues have been on the rise, particularly because of the pandemic and the effect that that has had on us all, but also it gave the opportunity to start talking more openly about mental health. I think people are more open to this discussion, but it is on the rise. And the statistics are that one in five women experience a common mental health disorder, such as anxiety, depression, called a common mental health disorder. Now, we're going to be exploring as well why it's called a disorder and whether it should be called a disorder or not. But we're also, the statistics are uh, that, for instance, 25.7% of women uh, consider uh, uh, consider self-harm, are involved in self-harm, and that's more than twice the rate of men, and we're going to be talking about that as well. But also 47% of women are considered to be at high risk of developing mental health disorders compared to 36% of our male counterparts. Now, those are all really quite frightening statistics, and, and as we mentioned, mental health issues are on the rise. So I want to open that the conversation by just kind of looking at those statistics. Is this right? I'm going to start with you, Roberta. Is this <laughs> right? Is this is this what we see? So I would say that it is right, but with a bit of a disclaimer in the sense that, yes, it has been shown through and through, through research, that um, females are more at risk for mental health disorders, both from a biological perspective, but also from a social perspective. So there are risks um, that are um, very um, um, uh, real for women, which are different than the risks for men. But at the same time, we also do know that uh, men do not report their mental health problems as much as women do. So a, a protective factor is the fact that women actually seek out help more than men and reach out and talk about their mental health more than men. So in a, an actual fact, one could say that those percentages could mean that there is some underreporting from the case of men who rarely talk about their mental health. You know, so um, they're more closed up. They, they kind of they use self-medication like drinking and they uh, um, use other stuff like aggressive behavior and stuff like that if they're unwell, but uh, um, they would not go and seek help. To be fair, lately I've been seeing more men accessing therapy. I'm a therapist um, and I've seen 
from like when I started off 20 years ago, I think more men are actually accessing psychological services. So if I had to look at a, a normal clinic day, I would have more females than males, but quite, quite a number of males are now there too. You know, whereas before I used to have a one-off, so now it's common that we have men seeking therapy as well. You know, so if women are more women are talking about mental health, I mean, women talk. Yes. that's what we do. We isn't that right? We do, <laughs> and women that's what we're talk. doing today. <laughs> exactly that. There's the whole point of the show. But we do talk, and we do talk about when things are bothering us, probably more than our male mm-hmm. male counterparts, as you said. But what has then, and we don't want to really dwell on men because this is about women, yes. but what has what has changed? What's changed over the last couple of years for men or women to be able to talk about this more openly? I think the stigma has changed. I think the idea that a person goes for therapy, that the person needs psychiatric help has actually changed. Um, uh, I think there's more acceptance. Uh, people are o- talking about it more openly in the media. You've had politicians talking about their mental health. You've had influencers talking about their mental health. So I think the, the more we talk about it, the less the stigma is there. So I think that's just what has been happening over the past years, that people are more um, uh, able to say, listen, I am not okay and I need help. Are, they are reaching out more. And this is ge- it's not gender related. It's just, you know, people in general, even younger people like kids are, you know, are more open, you know, are, are actually telling their parents, I need help, I need therapy, you know? We do, we just touching on that point about stigma, Yasmin, you said something really, really profound before we sat down around this table because you said, why do we call it disorder? And I'd never really thought about it. We, don't, we, we call it a mental health disorder when in actual fact, you <laughs> rightly said, that's actually kind of half the problem, right? Yeah, I mean, I think... As Roberta was saying, there has been some structural changes in society that has changed the pressures that are on both men and women. And I I think that actually sometimes anxiety and depression is a natural reaction to certain things around us, like you know loss of nature, a lot of pressure from work, increased responsibilities. It's kind of a natural reaction to be stressed by some of those things. And I think the way that we frame our mental health discussion needs to shift a little bit too to move away from this thing of like, okay, if you have mental health issues and it's a disorder, you're labeled and it's, you know, a thing that now you have to live with. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Roberta, but I know um, in certain countries, I don't know if that includes Malta, that once you have received a certain diagnosis, that diagnosis is for life. Not quite. Um, uh, not quite. I know it's like that in America. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if it's like that, but even just from a sort of human mm-hmm. individual, yes, it's quite the label to, is there. It's quite hard to shed these labels. And I think it's, it's healthy to think of, you know, um, us as going through phases where we struggle and phases where we thrive and it's just about okay how do we frame that struggle and how do we get the support that we need. I think as a psychologist I would say that in my experience what would make it a disorder and what would make it just a normal phase of life uh, is the extent that what you are experiencing is influencing how you live your life. Okay, so yes, we all go through bereavement, we all go through difficult times in our lives, we're very stressed. But if then that disorder, that um, experience starts to become too much for you to handle, if you're not going to work, if you are not going out, if you're not meeting with friends, if you're not sleeping at all, if you're not eating or eating too much, if, if there are um, those set things that are happening to you that are making you unable to function, then yes, I would say I, I'm, I'm also a person that doesn't use labels much. If pe- people who know me know I don't use labels much. I mean, labels are social constructions after all. But 
Then there are situations where when it becomes uh, too much for that person, then that person needs to reach out. Because sometimes we can go to the other extreme where, you know, people would say, oh, but this is your stress, you can need to live with it, you know, but no, when it becomes really serious, when, you know, people, the, the thing starts affecting them and the people around them, because I'm a family therapist, so I also understand that sometimes people with mental health disorders impact the, the family around them, you know, and the, and the disorder itself, or let's say the depression, the anxiety would impact not just that person, but also the people living with that person then yes, then there needs to be help and there needs to be support and there needs to be access to the right treatment, whether it's therapy, whether it's medication, but the treatment needs to be there. So I think so I would take a bit of a different position. I agree with you, there are labels and we should kind of be careful when using the labels because nowadays, like we all, because he's depressed or he's OCD, for example, you start firing labels here and there. When labels really can true. help you as well. Because yes. when I, from my experience, when I... When I was going through a lot of stuff, I thought I was a freak. A 13-year-old yes. going through a lot of hormones. And then when I was labeled, I was like, okay, it's normal. Like, I can talk about it. I yes. can tell my mom I'm feeling this way. And there would be a label behind everything that I'm saying. So to me, labels actually yes. help me if used properly, you know? Yes. So it's not like I feel depressed because I'm having a bad day. In my opinion, feeling depressed is not a day or two. No. It's a long period of time that you have to work so, so hard to get out of. So we have yes. to be careful how to use labels, but I believe that labels help certain people like And me. this is really interesting because people who actually suffer from mental health disorders, because part of my dissertation when I was doing my master's was about a, a, a type of disorder and the experience of patients. And patients actually said that when they got the label, it actually made more sense to them. You know, because they were being labeled as depressed, but they weren't quite depressed as other people were depressed. So they weren't understanding what's happening to them. And their experience, the participants in my study, was that when they actually understood the label and understood what it meant, it was actually helpful for them because it gave them an understanding of what there is. So when I'm doing these lectures, I always say to label or not to label. That is the question. You know, I mean, there I are two sides to the, to, to the argument. As always. much as we can find people who find it helpful, also other people might find it limiting. Yes, and I think yes, yes. the idea of sort of relating and be able to see yourself in others and know that you're you know, normal, <laughs> I think it's very helpful. But I think more than my sort of the issue about whether the label is right or wrong, it's more sort of contextualizing it in this idea that there are certain social situations that we are creating as a society that create these reactions, right? So again, like anxiety is a natural reaction to feeling completely overwhelmed and like you can't handle what's on your plate, right? I think it's more of that, like, let's recognize the fact that actually, if we're going to ask away why are all statistics of mental health getting worse in almost every country, we have to look at, okay, what society are we creating? What are the conditions we are creating that are creating these issues? And what are they? Big question. <laughs> um, I'm sure Roberta will have a lot to say about this, but I think there are some key things that we can really... Um, point out on. I think we've become very disconnected as a society. The way that we live is very isolating. Um, I was reading yesterday that loneliness on the body, which the statistics of loneliness are incredible. Something like 60 or 70 percent of people feel lonely. And the physical impact of that is like smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Um, I think the way we've structured our society, you know, we've moved from living in community, living with extended family, having support for childcare from aunts and cousins and young children, old and so on, to living very much isolated and the burden specifically on, of child rearing falling just in the immediate family unit. 
Um, so I think the, the fact that we are living more isolated lives has played a really big impact on mental health. And that's not to talk about, you know, environmental pressures, climate change and, you know, socioeconomic um, There is factors. a direct link between isolation and feeling lonely and mental health. In fact, our faculty has done a survey, it was in the news a few weeks ago, and they've they've done this research in, I think, 2019 or 2018, and they, now they've done it again. And actually, also because of the pandemic, the rates have gone up of the number of people who are feeling lonely here in Malta, you know, when we're so small and yet so disconnected. So I think you're right. I think that we are living a more disconnected life. And, and that definitely does have an impact on our mental health. Samira, are you seeing amongst your peers, because you're probably the youngest person on the table, <laughs> I'm going to just assume, are you seeing amongst your peers that, that your friends and your your work associates are alone are lonely? It's, it's harder to make friends, in my opinion. At, at this age, I mean, I speak to my parents and they're like, oh, we used to go out every weekend, you know, every week. We used to go out, you know, to the church and speak, you know. Nowadays, I don't feel that. It's so hard to make friends, especially um, with my mental health. I'm just taking one kind of option out of everything. Everyone's going through something. And it's easy to speak to each other, but if I don't feel comfortable with the person, you'll never become friends. It's very hard to make friends nowadays. And people you can trust, because that's the biggest issue. I think there's a lot of um, people who aren't genuine. I, it's always been there, I'm sure. But I'm living right now, so that's what I feel, you know? So I think, yeah, but it's, then, it's just okay, a bit harder. Okay, well, let me ask you that, mm -hmm. because, you know, we talked about the the fact that the world is changing and that mental health is rising. Well, one of the things that's happened that, uh, that has had a profound effect on each one of us is how we communicate. And whereas back in 30 years ago, you couldn't message Squad, someone, yeah. you couldn't... <laughs> email them you you had to get up you had to either phone them or you had to go and connect in person but obviously now your role as speaking out through social media means that you're engaged with social media which in itself as much as it is positive can be isolating it's yes it's very lonely is that your experience I've met a lot of amazing people my best friend I've she does you know she we were colleagues technically so she's the best person I could ever meet on social media but not everyone is like that so she's just one out of the thousands that I've met, you know, over the past four years that have that has actually stuck around. You know, she's been a friend. It's a text message is not a friend. It's not it's not a friend knocking on the door. You know, it's just a ping and you're like, hello. <laughs> I don't think it's I've ever different. heard that anyone define that quite as acutely as you just did. A text message is not a friend. And you, Roberta, you jumped in and you were yes. nodding away with yes, that. Yes, because it's all about connection. And I think my, a pet subject for me is always uh, what is happening to our families? You know, are we teaching our kids how to connect? Are we teaching our, because it's not just about connection. It's also about, um, uh, the, it's not just about communication. It's about connection. Even really. families don't really sit down and eat together anymore. For, for example, that's it's, something. It's really different. Like I speak to my, my sister's friends. It's very, it's not something normal. They do in their, in their yes. household to sit down and eat together. Like they eat separately. Everybody in his room or everybody yes. at different times. Yes. We're losing it's, out so much yes. on teaching our kids how to connect to each other, how to communicate with each other, how to fight, how to resolve a conflict. You know, these are very basic skills that come from first and foremost from our family. And unfortunately, what's happening here is sometimes is that, you know, um, people tend to say, well, but they learn it at school. But these are not things that you learn at school. Yes, you might have PSD and, and they would teach you how to 
conflict resolve and, and, and things like that. But what about inside of the family where people need to be together, watching a TV, discussing and arguing a little bit, you know, and and having a chat. Not everybody has his own Netflix account, you know, in their room, watching their their, their video on their own. It's, it, it's not healthy, you know, and I think, yes, our families are what they are, but um, uh, this this worries me. And, and not just one little thing that I want to say is also that in our families, we learn how to cope with stuff. You know, that we learn our coping mechanisms come from our families. And if our families do not teach us how to cope with stress, when we get older, and this is something that a lot of adolescents are feeling right now, they go into the world unprepared because they haven't been taught how to manage stress. If the parents and zero never... social skills. That's and another thing. Exactly. Like, we're never taught how to talk <laughs> to a friend, how to introduce ourselves and stuff like that. All the presentations we had at school, what I'm going to go present myself to a friend, you know what I mean? But you haven't... It helps, it's about the parents as well. Exactly. Yes, for sure. You know? For sure. Yes, I really, really agree with this point. <laughs> um, I think connection is crucial. It's not about, you know, the co- method of communication as such. It's about actually how do we show up in relationship? And, you know, we crave relationship, we crave connection, but we also fear it because we get hurt also in relationship. Um, and I really agree with uh, Roberta's point that you know, a lot of it starts in the family, but I also feel a lot of compassion for many parents because they are not equipped themselves with the skills to handle their own emotions. And then they have this huge responsibility to help their kids manage their own emotions. And this is where I I go back to kind of this idea of like, what is our presence as a human being? Um, There have been studies that show that actually one of the prime things that kids need is an emotionally attuned parent, a parent that can manage their emotions well. Now, where do we teach people to do that? Nowhere. We just don't teach it. So this is a problem that is being perpetuated, you know, from adults to children. And as Roberta said, you know, we we learn the coping mechanisms, but we also learn the dysfunctional coping mechanisms also um, in our family. And I think this is something that really needs to change. Um, How do we learn as human beings? We all have this responsibility, whether you're a parent, whether you're not. We have a responsibility to each other to learn enough about ourselves and our history so that when we react to each other, we react in a kind way. I mean, we see this nowadays. I mean, communication has completely broken down. Even on the road, someone cuts you off, tantrums, anger. You know, we have a lot of emotion that we just don't know how to manage. Life's getting more painful, more stressful, and we don't have the skills to manage that. And then that gets passed down onto the kids. So what's, if, if this is one of the roots of, of mental health challenges, we're going to use the word challenges instead of disorders, mm-hmm. Going back to what you were saying, yes, of course, there are issues where those challenges become significant disorders, and that would be something that definition rather than I'm going to use the word definition rather mm-hmm. than the label is important. You know, important. Well. But we're talking about mental health affecting challenges. us, challenges affecting us as women and affecting the women around us. If the world is getting more challenging and if relationships are breaking down and if communication is becoming more difficult, what on earth are we going to do? Because it's, as you said, yes, we need to do something about it. But where does that start? Because the family unit is not becoming stronger, it's becoming weaker. And my experience as a as a British person, our families live far away from each other. So the family unit is very small. And if that's dysfunctional, that's a very tight space to have a yes. lot of dysfunction. So what do mm-hmm. we do? What do we do? 
For example, one program that's been starting in Malta is the Positive Parenting Program, which has been launched recently. And it actually is a program that teaches parents how to parent in a positive way, but also how to learn about emotional regulation, how to teach their kids about emotional regulation, how to deal with a tantrum. For example, a two-year-old having a tantrum, what's the best way to deal with it? You know, two-year-olds get a, a, a myriad of emotions, but obviously being two, you won't know how to deal with it. So when you would need a parent who knows. And yes, if they don't have, if they didn't have that from their own families, then they can reach out to these positive parenting programs and learn how to do this. So I think in society, there are things that are helping, you know, even the fact that people are more open to seeking help when they need it, you know, because you don't go to therapy when it's really, really bad. You need to go to therapy when it's okay, but a bit stressful and you need to understand more about yourself because, you know. I would say actually everyone should go to therapy yes. full stop, no matter what that is happening in your life. Well, I'm a bit because... biased, I cannot say that. <laughs> I'm going to say it for you. <laughs> everyone go to therapy. I think we need to make therapy cool, to be honest. It is. Um, it is. Uh, Thank it you. Really is. Um, and I think it should be a positive thing that actually you're yes. taking ownership for your like um, duty as a citizen to be a good citizen yes. and treat the people around you in a way that is is healthy. Is it becoming cool? Yes, it is. I'm surprised when people tell me I don't go to a therapist. I'm like, what do you do with your life? <laughs> it's I've only seeked help three weeks ago. So it, I, had a, I had a really bad experience growing up with a psychotherapist, unfortunately. I know not everyone is like that <laughs> now. And it was super hard for me to pick up the phone, call and make an appointment for myself. I canceled three times before going, but I went. And I've been going weekly and it's so liberating. I walk out like walking on clouds. But would you then agree, because you've just absolutely hit a nail on the head. If you're having a mental health challenge, you just said that you had an experience that was a negative experience. I think it's important to just highlight the fact that you need to find the person that is right yes, for you. Yes. And you can't just, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you can't just go to any therapist. You've got to find somebody that you connect, can, can connect with. Am I not right? Yes. Now? And in fact, it's, it, research shows that what works best in therapy is not really the skill of the therapist, but the connection that the therapist is able to, uh, you know, to build with the client. There needs to be a good fit. And when there is that good fit, then therapy works, you know. Um, uh, so, yes, connection is always key. It's, it's the key for everything, even in therapy. You know? Which in, implies that it's actually OK to turn around and say, listen, this therapy is not working for yes, me. Because there are so many different cognitive yes. therapies. There's psychotherapy. There's And even uh, just counseling. the person looking at you. If, if you feel comfortable to talk about, you're talking about really deep stuff, but you're not getting the same reaction back like a friend, you know? For example, if you talk about your trauma to a friend, he's like, ah, yes, I went through something similar. But to a therapist, there's no response. And it's even more liberating because you're like, oh my gosh, someone is listening to me. They're giving me healthy ways to cope with all the things I'm saying. And as I said before, it's so liberating. You, you walk out just feeling happy, feeling more yourself, if that makes sense. In just three weeks, I've gotten to know myself even more better. Why do I react like this to this certain situation? It's so healthy. And my I feel like in my generation, it's, I think I was late to the party to, to go to therapy. Because <laughs> everyone goes to therapy. And it's so, heck, it's just normal to us. And this you know? is what you're talking about. This is what you're su suggesting. Now, Samira has just said that her generation are all happy to go to therapy. But of course, with all due respect, you are only one generation and there's yes, lots of, of the rest <laughs> of us around the table. Absolutely. Yeah. What if you're not of that generation? Is there still stigma? How do we get 
anybody who's of a different generation have somebody who's older to want to open up because that may not be necessarily what would have been expected. My parents, for instance, would never have dreamt of going to therapy, but they're still alive. And they still have their challenges and they've still just lived through COVID, which caused a lot of anxiety for everybody. So how do we get people all over the place to do exactly what you're saying and everyone go to therapy? I mean, I think positive stories of, you know, great experiences in therapy help and we need to share those. But I think also the concept of therapy can be expanded, right? Therapy doesn't need to be necessarily seeing specifically as psychotherapist. There are a lot of different forms of therapy, things like art therapy, dance therapy, yoga, meditation have become a lot more popular. I think it's it's just about finding that space where you can get to learn about yourself better. And therapy is a great way because you have a mirror, you have a witness, you have someone who can give you, you know, unbiased feedback. But there are also many other ways to get you, get to know yourself. And I think this is one thing that's changing as well is that we've started to value this as a society. I mean, if you go back a few generations, the main aims of life were sort of, you know, get a good job, find a company that you can stay in for life. Mm. Um, we didn't have this thing of like, I should actually be happy, reach my goals and thrive as a human being. I think this is almost a, a new innovation, which is which is beautiful. And I think that really helps us to actually see, okay, I have a life, you know, this is my being. How am I going to get to know about myself better so I can enjoy and make the most out of the opportunities available to me? And I think it's really beautiful that there are stories now being told about a lot of different stuff. I mean, I do a lot of breathwork. I'm a breathwork facilitator. Breathwork is something that is... What is breathwork? <laughs> breathwork. And there are many different forms. Um, there are breath exercises, which are very good to just calm the nervous system and relax the body. But there are also more transformational kinds of breath work where you do what's called a con conscious connected breath, which is actually a sort of deep journey into your own psyche. Um, it's a very powerful tool of personal transformation. People get a lot of realizations about their lives, similar to the realizations you would get in therapy, but it's sort of you, know, you on your own in this journey. Um, and I've seen, you know, really beautiful transformations of people having those aha moments of like, oh, wow, I react like this because of that, or I'm scared of this because of that. And I think these realizations are really precious and we need to encourage ourselves to seek out these things in whatever form. Therapy, amazing. You're a dancer, you like dancing, dance more, right? Like all of these things that bring us to connect with ourselves, I think is really important. What Yasmin was talking about there is is connecting with your own psyche, with your own brain. And it has statistically been proven that we use very little of our brain. In actual fact, we can do without quite a lot of our brain. But is this what we're saying? Is, is this what you're saying as well? Because yes. Yasmin just said there is a different kind of therapy, but the goal is the same. Yes. In fact, even if you had to think about psychological therapies nowadays, mindfulness is used very a lot, which is very similar obviously um, uh, and it has been shown that for example even through functional MRIs that mindfulness plus therapy plus medication for people who are depressed actually shifts the happy place in the brain in the sense that um, a person who is depressed would feel happy sometimes but it doesn't feel quite the same as when he's not depressed or when she's not depressed but what, and, and it's actually shown through the functional MRI, so a, a different place actually lights up. With mindfulness exercises, therapy and medication, that happy place goes closer to the happy place uh, where um, the person actually can feel happy in a way that he would feel happy when not depressed. You know, so yes, mindfulness has been researched um, to be very effective um, uh, to support people who are anxious and depressed. So it's it's a you know it's research based. 
you know. <laughs> I never knew that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow. Coming back to, to you, because you've been very open about your challenges with mental health and, and what's happened to you in your life and, and how you've responded to that. Do you think, and I'm going to ask you to share whatever you're comfortable sharing, but do you think that, that it is common, more common, amongst your generation it's common for you guys to go for therapy or for to you're late to the late i think to the we game. need to go to therapy because of the generation we grew up in i don't believe we you know were born with the need to go to therapy everyone has gone through something even all the older generation but then again I, i'm living in this generation so i feel like everyone has gone through something even if it's as little as dropping a cup and it traumatized you as we were saying earlier you know, so everyone went through something different and there are different time frames of when you want to seek help or when you can seek help, because sometimes it's mentally unavailable to you to just seek help. It's very difficult. And it's important to seek help with the right persons. I mean, it's very important that, for example, you yes. you know who you're going through, that the p person you're going through is a warranted person, for example, who's done the training and who can who would be able to cope with whatever you're going and to be talking. And who clicks with you. Because yes. my bad experience was someone who I didn't click with. And unfortunately, I was still 14 years old. I'm, tw I'm, I'm almost 21 now. Mm. And that one bad experience, like, to, I feel like I was kind of... Therapy was never an option to me, financially, growing up. It, it wasn't that my parents didn't want to help me. It was that my parents never understood what mental health issues were, even though they were struggling with their own stuff. And nowadays they know, you know, the mistakes they did as parents. Um, so I think we need more outlets as well. So when I was 13 to 14, I was going through a really, really bad time in my life. Nothing triggered it, but I was going through a really bad depression. I went through six months of self-harm. And I opened up to someone who was very important in my life. And she did the wisest thing and called my mom and explained the situation. She was like, look, your daughter is not in a good mental state. Like, check her out. And at the time, it was like the world crashed on me because my mom was yelling, went crying, not yelling at me. She, was, she, was, she felt... She was shocked. She, yes, she and felt she disappointed as a parent. And I'm really sad that, you know, she had to go through that. But unfortunately, that's what made her realize what I was going through. And I love my mom. I love my dad. <laughs> um, they were the best shoulders to cry on when I really needed them to. But at the time, I didn't understand, even with the hormones. I was 13, you know. And then after my last suicide attempt, um, things got really serious really quickly because I didn't have time to cope. Um, so my last suicide attempt was in June. And then that same October, my sister was diagnosed with an illness. And the following February, I almost lost my mom in the most terrible way. So I, I didn't even have time to process what happened to me, what happened to my sister and what happened to my mom. And my dad had to, you know, he still had to work. Someone had to bring the money home. So I was the one who took care of my mom when she couldn't even walk or talk, you know? It took me a long time for me to realize that I was a victim as well. Because I was like, oh, Miskina, like my mom, what she went through, or oh, my sister, what she went through, and my dad. And after three years, I was like, wait, like I was there with them as well. It's not easy to realize that you were a bystander to the situation, but at the same time, you weren't a bystander. You were in the family, you were in the same house, you were helping, you were, you know? So I think it was the hardest thing it wasn't that time of my life because I don't remember half of it because that's what happens with trauma. Apparently, most of the brain just cancels out a lot of things 
which I didn't know. <laughs> um, but then the realization afterwards, like I met my boyfriend and, you know, you, you start settling down. So you start talking about serious stuff. And then some issues were coming up. I was like, this is not who I am. But then I realized it's because of my post-trauma. I was acting in a certain type of way. This you know? comes full circle back to what you were saying before, uh, Yasmin, where, when, when we started this conversation about the fact that people respond to different situations in our lives. We are affected by different things happening in our lives in different ways. And some one thing that might seem small to some people can really cause a reaction to somebody else. Why is that? I think it depends on on the fact that um, uh, we are all very different and we have different coping styles. So some people would react by pulling their socks up and facing it. Some people won't. And I think it's a lot about our resilience. So resilience is the coping mechanism that we have inside of us that allows us to deal with difficult situations. Now, what helps resilience? Well, I think it's about emotional intelligence. It's about knowing how to deal with certain situations. And um, uh, for example, we do know that people who actually have at least one confidant in their life, so one person with whom they can share things, are more likely to uh, be able to face certain situations in a better way. In fact, what we do know about, for example, self-harm is that uh, most often people who self-harm are very closed up in themselves and do not talk about it. Self-harm is a lot, is very secretive. But it's also statistically one in four women will have self-harm. This is, this is astonishing. Yes. Can I just make a comment also about the sort of pulling up your socks and facing it? Because that can also be a trauma response. Um, and I think one of the most interesting aspects, you know, when we talk about wellness is a lot of the new research that's being done on trauma and how people cope and the coping mechanisms and so on. And I think we need to kind of expand the definition of trauma to not be so acute. Like trauma doesn't have to be a war, it doesn't have to be you know, very serious sexual, mental or physical abuse. Actually, we all get trauma when we have a need that is not met and we don't have a confidant where that can help us process that issue. Um, Many children, when they need help, they don't reach out. And they don't reach out, not because they don't have loving parents. Many times it's because they don't want to bed in the parents or that they feel they have no right to feel the way they do. Sometimes it's very innocent. But for that child, having a need not met and not having the coping skills to deal with it really impacts our ability to be resilient and to be happy and to cope with life's challenges later on in life. So I think this idea of, you know, trauma being a big, scary word, we also need to just kind of, you know, relax the conversation about that and just realize we are all traumatized in some way. And trauma is also not just about when you receive harm. It's also about having needs not met. You, know, you can you can traumatize someone by punching them in the face. Like you can be violent, but you could also hurt them by not giving them water, for example. Right. So having needs not met is also a trauma. And that's where we come back to isolation, no social connection. Right? That is a very critical social need that's not being met. And in fact, the biggest predictor, the greatest predictor of the length of human life is actually the width and breadth of our human relationships. And if that's the case, then what we as a world have just been through globally and together over the last two, three years with the pandemic, you're talking about isolation, this would have been trauma for almost everyone, no? It was. Because we we were isolated. So many of us were isolated. So this would qualify as and trauma. And despite our, I, I can talk about myself, despite our coping mechanisms, I know that when there was that second lockdown last year in May, 
it really impacted me because I couldn't take the isolation anymore. So yeah, I was with people all the time. I was doing eight hours of lecturing, meetings, therapy every day online. I was with people, but it wasn't the same, you know? So, and when the second lockdown came, it really impacted me and I, I really struggled. And then I started walking. I, I decided I had to do something about it, about my mental health. And so I started walking every day. I started meditation. You know, I started to really take care of myself because it was too much for me to handle. I know, I, I know my limits. And I knew that at that point, it was too much for me to handle, even though I was with people for eight hours a day, but it wasn't the same. And also, like, uh, this is my feeling, and maybe you can give your opinion on this, Roberta. I also get the feeling that there was the trauma of the isolation, but also the isolation itself uncovered a lot of trauma. And what I've seen um, with some of the people that come to Sanya is that actually being stuck inside, you know, in very small confined spaces with the family unit actually brought out a lot of our coping mechanisms that cause suffering to each other. And that put a lot of pressure on the family unit, pressure on the children. And I think that's also one of the reasons why a lot of mental health issues kind of came to the light. At the same time, it's an opportunity because it made a lot of people more open to seeking help and actually reaching out to get support and actually unpacking some of the things that would help actually the family units, you know, because, thrive over time. Because there was a global pandemic that was affecting every single person on the planet. And it seemed like it was okay to say, you know, I'm not okay. Yes. Because nobody was, was okay. okay. So it, it was normal. It, it was almost as if the pandemic did us a, a, mm. a, a favor in that regard, because we could speak out and say, I'm not okay right now because the whole world is locked down and we're stuck with a, an illness that we've never seen before. Coming back, I want to come to each of you because we come towards a close and, and starting with you, Yasmin, what your, you, you've given some great advice and I, I love the fact that we're kind of relabeling uh, not just mental disorders as mental challenges or, or challenges that we're experiencing in our lives, but also trauma, relabeling trauma that doesn't have to be, you know, something huge. It It's what's important to you. But from a mental health, in all of the women that are, are listening to this or involved in this mental health kind of viewpoint moving forward, what would you like to see happen? And what's your best advice? A big question. Um, uh, our mantra at Sanya is go within, right? And use whatever tools you feel comfortable with. It's something um, that everyone has to find their own thing. Some people meditate, some people dance, some people seek therapy. Some of us do, you know, a mix of all the things. But I think seeking to understand ourselves and what causes us pain and what are our coping mechanisms? Because we've all experienced pain, right? Like, I think it's the one thing that connects us as human beings. I don't think anyone has come to this world and not shed a tear at some point <laughs> in their human life. Something that connects us all, no matter, you know, gender, race, and so on. We all experience pain. And very often our anxieties, our depression, and so on, are actually ways that we've coped with that pain. And... At some point, they might be functional, and at some point, they can impact our life on a deeper, deeper level, right? Even this thing of isolating ourselves, right? That that's just shows that we're not trusting other people with our pain. Maybe because we've got hurt, maybe because people let us down. Isn't it normal that if someone let you down, you might feel scared to reach out for help again? Of course, completely normal. So I think let's seek to understand our coping mechanisms, and we need the support to be able to do that so that we can figure out, okay, which one of these coping mechanisms are helpful and which ones maybe can we choose a different option? Because most of the time, we don't have only one option in how to cope with our pain. And I think the, that is the beauty of mental health challenges that actually they bring you into a deeper connection with yourself because 
you know, society teaches us to drink our pain away, Netflix our pain <laughs> away, and, you know, shop our pain away. But actually, there is a real beauty in just actually holding ourselves and um, having someone hold us, whether that's a therapist or a confidant and so on, so that we can unpack who we really are, how we feel, so that we can plot a chart forward that is one that actually brings us a lot more joy and happiness. This sounds like this is ringing true to what you were just saying. Yes. <laughs> so is this, you mentioned that you, you are feeling freedom from seeing a therapist and you were late to the party yes. on the therapist, but it's exactly what, what Yasmin's just been saying. For you, Samir, is this your journey? Is this the way that you see forward? And is this what you would recommend to your friends, to everyone? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I don't have a lot of advice because I've only just started on my therapy journey. But from the problems that I've coped with myself, I think that therapy is the best thing you can do in any form of therapy. I've just chosen because I like to talk a lot. So it's a bit easier for me, you know, to connect with people by speaking. So that's just therapy I chose to do. And as I said, less than a month, I already feel a different person. I'm not going to say a completely different person, but I'm on the way there. And I like who I'm becoming. And that's, you know, I want to be that person before becoming a parent. And I know it's a long time away. But it's something to think about, especially because our generation, I feel like so many parents disappointed their own children. We don't want to be those parents to our children. So to me, it was very important to seek therapy, first and foremost, because I want to build a family who's healthy. Like every single one of us, I, I want them to be in some way mentally healthy and doing something they actually like. You've, you know. you've dropped these beautiful <laughs> nuggets throughout these conversations and you just dropped another one just a, a second ago. You said, I like who I am becoming. And I think that is the most positive and the most uh, significant thing that you could say, that through what your experience and what you have experienced, which has been a lot of trauma, but what you're going through now is that you like who you're becoming. And isn't that positive? I mean, that's a fantastic beautiful. thing to say. It is really beautiful. Well done. Um, and these are the insights that people get, you know, from uh, doing any sort of therapy. Um, uh, my, my last uh, message or my last thought about this is that, uh, you know, we women do have an advantage in the sense that we are more able to connect to people. We are, in a way, because of our socialization, we are more social people. You know, not all of us, obviously I'm generalizing here, but the most, most of us are. And I think that is our secret weapon. You know, having someone to talk to, whether it's a confidant, a friend, or it's our secret weapon to safeguarding our mental health. So I think that connection is is, is the our our secret weapon to mental health, and I think we need to you know, cultivate that as much as possible. I can see us being around the table and having this conversation again, because I feel like we've kind of got really into some very important stuff. But for now, I want to say thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for dropping some really important thoughts around this table. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you.